0: You know, the storytelling and the digital, especially in the digital world, uh, now with social media, discovering of what God is doing through people and and doing uh, justice to that story by honoring the, the person or the communities that you're covering is very important.
1: Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way Editor and President, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word & Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary resources. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Francisco Letardo. He's Vice President for Marketing and Community Engagement at Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Chani, Kansas. He is also a member of the Word and Way Board of Trustees, currently our Vice Chair. And he's a talented photographer, videographer. You often see him at Baptist events in the area as he's taking pictures. I had a chance to sit down with Francisco a few months ago to just talk about a little bit of his life and his ministry. And in particular, we were talking at the end of the interview about... A trip that he had taken in 2017 to refugee camps in bangladesh with rohingya muslims we included many of his photos in an earlier issue of word and way back in march of 2018 so we kind of talked about that trip and this ministry that he does through his photography and his other types of media and since we've had this conversation actually francisco has done another trip for word and way he went to the global baptist peace conference in cali colombia you'll find many of his photos in the september issue of word and way magazine They're gorgeous, and they tell a story about an important event of people from around the world gathering to talk about some really significant and challenging issues. So I'm I'm thankful to have Francisco on our board, giving us advice and opinion, as well as sharing his photos with us to help us in this ministry of telling stories about the work of Baptists here and around the world. So here's my interview with Francisco Letardo. All right, well, thank you, Francisco, for joining us on the program. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, we are sitting here at Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas, and this is your home turf. Sure is. I yeah. wonder if you could tell us a little bit about Central and what it is that you're up to here.
0: I'd be glad to. Um, right now, I'm a vice president for community engagement. Uh, It is a uh, newly configured team that encompasses uh, tasks that are related to raising funds, donor relations, event management, communications, a number of different things that uh, at one point were done by several other teams. Uh, And uh, I'm happy to lead a community engagement team, which allows me to continue to work alongside the president, Molly Marshall, Robin Sambothi, who's our director of uh, seminary relations, Donna Carrier, who's the assistant to, to the president. And we bring in other faculty or other staff or administrators as needed. So the group kind of sort of ex- expands and contracts.
1: Well, I want to back the story up a little bit, and we're going to eventually get to some of where your current work, but... You were born in Ecuador. I was. What, what can you tell us about mm-hmm. about Ecuador and, and your childhood there?
0: Yeah, I love the story of Ecuador because we've remained really connected with our home country and our family and our food and our customs. Uh, you know, I was born in 1964 in Quito, Ecuador. That happened to be my dad's first call out of seminary. Okay. I can't tell my story without going a little bit into his and my mother's. My dad was evangelized in the street of Guayaquil, Ecuador. He was 15 years old, kind of a a young man that didn't really know what to do with himself. He had left the farm living. His mom sent him into the city to sort of figure out schooling, education, move away from the farming aspects of life. And, uh, so he, he listened to, um, U S missionaries, uh, preaching in the corners of this, of Guayaquil, Ecuador. And he would just be curious, ask a lot of questions. Eventually he, he was, um, evangelized and uh, he turned over his life to Jesus Christ. And uh, he had been a cultural Catholic up until that point and became really involved. At that point, he joined youth groups, uh, all kinds of church activities. That's where he met my mom. And he was mentored by a lot of other missionaries and a lot of other Ecuadorian pastors to really seek theological education. So that's what he went out to do in various locations in Ecuador. And soon after graduating and getting married, Mary and my mom, they got their first call to go to Quito. And my oldest uh, sister had already been born, also in Quito. And, and, uh, and then so I was born up in the mountains, beautiful Quito, Ecuador. And from there, traveled to other places in Ecuador as he went from one church to another. We finished our time in Ecuador in 1972. My dad had been pastoring a Christian Missionary Alliance church in Guayaquil. And he had always wanted to sort of pave forward. And had always had this dream to be a missionary himself, and so the best at that time in the early late 60s, early 70s, there was just a lot of Latinos going coming to the U.S., largely from the Caribbean, uh, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Dominican. Of course, there was good uh, there was a good number of Mexicans coming to the West Coast, but he was largely thinking about the East Coast, and he uh, just decided one day to come to the U.S. with a, a visitor's visa. And try to scout out opportunities, and he did for about three or four months. He lived in in the Bronx, New York, and out of all that uh, networking, which he's he's a, a great networker, he ended up with a uh, an invitation from the Christian Missionary Alliance to come to a church. At that time, they had offered him a Hispanic church start in Rochester, New York, and uh, so. He got the official letter back then. That's all you really needed uh, is this call from an organization that says they need you. And he came back to Ecuador and said, we're moving to the U.S. And so I was just seven years old, six or seven years old, and when when he came back, and um, we kind of turned our life around uh, rather quickly. He resigned from his church in Guayaquil, and just the rest of the time was packing and figuring out what we were going to do here in the U.S. And so in 1972, we flew on February 19th, landed on February 20th of 1972 in the middle of a blizzard in uh, in JFK. We had to spend a few hours at the airport before anybody could come pick us up up. And it was just first impressions were amazing about this country and all that we had to, we were just about to experience. And so that's a little bit about his call and and his vision to sort of be a missionary here in the US and really look for ways to be involved in ministry here to help those who were coming to the US to start new lives, just like he was, just like he and my mom were. Anyway, the uh, twist happened. We were we were in 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 the Bronx first and then Queens, New York for a few weeks until he made reconnected. This is no cell phones, there's no internet. He needed to, needed to go back to the Christian Missionary Alliance office in. Somewhere in Manhattan, and say, "Hey, I'm here," and he did. And when he did that, they said, "Oh my gosh, we have totally forgotten that you are coming," and we regret to say, the church in Rochester is like it's no longer an option. And so I, I wasn't there, but I can just imagine this awkward silence. And my dad, uh, they obviously needed to figure figure out something for him, and they said, the "Best we can do is, is this church that just lost their pastor, but it's such a small church in Hoboken, New Jersey." They can't pay you, but they have a parsonage They have this brownstone right next to the church. And maybe you can live there and you're going to have to get a job and still minister with this church. And so my dad wasn't about to head back to Ecuador. So he said, I'll take it. He ended up taking that job and um, working. He, Of course, he was supposed to be a part-time pastor. It never turns out to be that way. He's never
1: a part-time pastor. Right.
0: <laughs> never turns out to be that way. Uh, he ended up getting having to get a full-time job at a factory in Hoboken, a textile factory. My mom had to do the same. We, of course, enroll in school. We learned English almost right away. We were so young, we can pick it up right away. So we helped maneuver things for them in this new culture and new language as kids. And we were always around uh, ministry and older people and uh, networking. We would see my dad as a networker from the moment he landed here in the U.S. and uh, uh, ecumenical. He's an ecumenical person. And so... I'll tell you how we transitioned from hoboken to where he basically spent the rest of his ministry and where i was able to grow and and figure things out for myself as a networker he was invited to a youth camp run by the american baptists and uh, he loves engaging young people and so he went and as he connected himself with the young people they were american baptists Churches USA Latino executives there. And they said, We're really launching a lot of Latino churches all through the East Coast, uh, New England area specifically. And would you be willing to go start a church in Providence, Rhode Island? My dad said, Is this a full-time ministry and they said it sure will be and you'll have a host church that can host you and you can sort of slowly get started he said when do I need to go and so he came back from that youth retreat and came back home and said let's pull out an encyclopedia because I don't really know whether they said Long Island or Rhode Island. <laughs> and and we eventually figured out it was Rhode Island, three hours north from New York City or from Hoboken. And uh, we landed there and that's where he became an American Baptist home missionary. The American Baptist Home Mission Society's you know, designated him as a home missionary and he was able to um, live out his ministry for more than 25 years at uh, Calvary Baptist Church in South Providence, Rhode Island. And that's a little bit of the Ecuador transition to the U.S. and then transition into sort of Baptist Baptist
1: life. And of course, Providence is pretty significant place in Baptist life historically.
0: Definitely. I mean, to be able to be so aware of the First Baptist Church in America and Roger Williams and all that heritage. Back when I was young, of course, I was like, yes, okay, uh, I guess it's important. <laughs> now that I'm deeply involved in Baptist life, going back to Rhode Island, it's like, there's, there's, I have to stop and even just from a corner, I look up at First Baptist Church of America and, and reconnect with the neighborhood where we grew up and the church that's still there that my dad helped to lead with a, a good and vibrant community.
1: It's a fascinating story. I only knew little pieces of that. So it's exciting to hear some of the, the way that that journey evolved for you. So as you grew older, you gained an interest in media. Work. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. uh, you have quite a... Quite an impressive resume, actually, yeah, when it comes to the you. media, even with uh, some work with the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, how did how did that emerge for you? Sure,
0: I have to jump back to Quito, Ecuador. My dad, I was a toddler, but my dad was involved in a a Christian radio station morning music show, and I my I, he used to take me. And I was a tiny little kid, but I remember the big honking microphones with the big dials and cables everywhere in a studio where some other guy with headphones would be on the other side of the glass. And I just fell in love with all that just because it was like stuff you can turn and little lights that would blink. And, and ever since I can remember, I would tell my dad, I want to do what you did. And so for me, it was radio. I came to the US as a seven-year-old already, being a, a, a big consumer of music and understanding the radio world. And of course, when we came to the US, I got my first AM radio, listened to it constantly, was always analyzing music and the announcers and envisioning these studios. And so, But then I also became a TV kid. In Ecuador, we've hardly consumed television. But when we came to the US, I'd hate to say, my parents worked full-time jobs. We came home from school, the babysitter would sit us down and uh, feed us, but also say, here's the other babysitter is the uh, GETV sitting in the room. And uh, we became consumers of television. And so that's when my my whole visual interest took hold. And uh, I switched from wanting to do radio, though I have done some radio, to just wanting to do television. And uh that's uh how I got started. I I attribute it to a good education, but but mostly to an internship, a real intentional hands-on internship that I had when I was finishing up college in Rhode Island College. I went to several different schools, but I finished up in Rhode Island College, and my advisor said, if you if you think you're gonna make it into the media business without having Without having any, any hands-on experience, you're, you're going to be selling houses, you're going to be doing anything else but being in the media world. So the first thing I'm going to do is try to connect you with an internship. And I did that, a rather intensive internship where I would have to travel an hour a day from Providence to New London, Connecticut, to be a right-hand person to the sportscaster. So we would go out and cover the local college sports, run the cameras, come back and edit his highlights. And give him give him write the script for him, basically. all he needed to do is look really really good, and get in front of the camera and read the read the prompter. But everything else we did in the background. And so that was that was an amazing experience. And anytime I talk to anybody who wants to do media, I say, you have to you have to just you get what you put into it. It's I can't say enough about about that kind of experience. That allowed me then to graduate school and immediately land a job. I was interning also at a public, a public television station, helping to produce a local, a local public affairs program and a position opened up. And, and a friend of mine said, you should, you should apply for that. I think you would get that. And it was a director's position. I'm like, I I have yet to do my first TV gig. And you think I could be a television director? And he says, try it. And I did. And I got the stinking job. (laughs) So at, Twenty one. I, had, uh, I was a director for public affairs programming at a local PBS station in Providence, Rhode Island, which meant doing some live shows, some pre-recorded shows, producing aspects of things, and directing. Not technical directing, because it was a union shop, but sort of calling the shots and letting, letting somebody else punch the buttons to run cameras and all of that. So it was an amazing experience, which then led to uh, wanting to do a second television in a non-public television market. I remember I had gotten married in Boston, Massachusetts. I had, Because I had remained in contact with my culture and my language, I was always looking at Univision, Spanish language television, as this major network making all kinds of inroads and in, 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 in it still is a major network. And I was always sort of, sort of dreaming about going there maybe. And I did. Uh, uh, a, a An English uh, language independent station in Worcester, Massachusetts decided to change their market and, and, and become an affiliate to Univision. And they were looking for a director of public affairs. And I went and applied for that and got it. And, uh, that's how I was able to move my way into that aspect of the vocation on television production. And still my interest was in deeper type of programming. I didn't want to continue to do news. This was at a time when news was not like it's crazy today. It was still somewhat respectful And I didn't want to do commercials. I didn't want to. That aspect of television didn't appeal to me. I wanted to do richer, more in-depth kind of discussions with the community to help the Latino community in the Boston, Massachusetts area to sort of learn about things. And that was really from my PBS background. And, And so looking back now, when I look at the kind of work I'm involved with now, I look back at that first wanting to just get away totally from ministry Uh, Because I had been a preacher's kid, and I just didn't want any more to do with it. And then just going out to make big money in the secular television world. But somehow every, every step of the way I found myself sort of stepping back from that big ideal that I had to doing something that was a little more meaningful to me. Along the way, as I was working with uh, Univision Spanish language television in in Hoboken, uh, the World Cup soccer games came to the US in 1994. And around 1995 they were doing a really big volunteer push. And I, I love soccer. I've always followed it. And I said, I would love to go volunteer. So I went to the, on my lunchtime. I took, took a bus or a train to the headquarters and filled out an application, told them I really need to get back to work. But can you take a look at it? They took a real quick look at it and it said, would you be able to stay for another hour? And I said, why? And they said, well, we have something here that we would like to pitch to you that's more than just a volunteer job. I called work. I said, I'm going to be late. I'm sorry. And they put me into this office and they said, we have a, we have a position I think you'd be great for. And it's press operations manager for the Boston venue for the world cup soccer organizing committee. Like, wow, how does that the only thing is this job starts and you can start tomorrow if you want. And it'll end once the cup games are done. We'll take care of you in terms of salary and you'll, you'll enjoy what you're doing. That's why we're asking you to do it. But You'll be out of a job within a year, year and a half. And so uh, I on the spot move. I just I said, let me let me think about it. And I went to work and I talked to my general manager and I said, is there any way I can take a leave of absence? I can help Univision connect better with the Boston venue. I was trying to pitch this big idea. Of course, they saw right through it. And they said, (laughs) this kid wants to just go work there. They said, feel free to resign. And you know what? I still could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick with this. At that time, that television station really was asking me to do more commercial work. They had stepped way back from doing their community engagement type of work. Once they got into the commercial world, they got enamored with the money that was involved in that. And so I stepped back and and said, I don't know that this role is really going to go where I want it to, or where I would like it to. And I, I said, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to go and work for the World Cup soccer games. And I did. And that that was an amazing experience working with really basically to help set up a temporary media center facility in the Boston venue. At that point, it was just known as Foxboro Stadium, which is now uh, Gillette Stadium helped to recruit tons of volunteers. These games only happen when you have a lot of volunteers come in to do all these different tasks, helped to set up a temporary facility, got me involved in helping to do uh, structures that were temporary structures, but usable structures. We set up this, this temporary tent which basically became a, a well-equipped media center for covering the world, the world cup soccer games in the Boston venue. And I got to connect with all my counterparts all across the country who did the same in LA, New York, Chicago, Miami. So it was just great networking. And so when this work finally came to an end after the cups, the cup games ended, my boss said, uh, don't be surprised if you get a call because I'm already putting a team together for the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta. I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this because this is a lot of work. This is almost 24 seven kind of work. I had just started having children with my wife, Tanya. And, um, but anyway, they called and they said, uh, when can you come to atlanta and that's how i got involved in the atlanta committee for the olympic games in 1995 transitioned over to atlanta this time i was a venue manager so i was running a, a, a 15 16 different functional areas, one of which was the press operations manager. So I went from a functional area manager for the World Cup soccer games to being the head of a venue. In this case, it was Clark Atlanta University, and it was uh, field hockey, the field hockey venue. I knew nothing about the sport, <laughs> but at that point, it's most mostly about operations People management, recruiting of volunteers, and helping to make sure that the games happen safely. And of course, we know what happened in Atlanta, and it was all kinds of volatility involved. But it was an amazing experience again. And uh, at that time, here we go back to my dad. My dad used to be was already well ingrained with the ABC, and he would be he would call American Baptist Home Mission Society's their publication department and say. You have an American Baptist young man working for the Olympics. Why haven't you done an article about him? This is my dad. The networker. And they would brush him off. They would tell me, eventually they told me they would just keep brushing him off. Why would we do that story? I don't know. Anyway, they finally, Laura Alden from American Baptist Home Mission Society, who now runs Judson Press, finally called me on a weekend. She caught me. I happened to be home and not working. And she says, I have to just tell you, your dad is your biggest promoter. He's been asking me to please call you to write up a story. And here's why I'm calling. So if you are too busy, don't want to be bothered. I'm okay. I just wanted to say to him that we tried. And I said, well, I got a few minutes. And what's this about? And she said, she asked me all about the Olympic experience. And I gave her everything I could tell her about it. At the very end, it was almost like these Super Bowl commercials at the very end when they go up to the player and they said, you won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? She did almost the same thing. She says, so after the Olympic Games, what are you going to do? Because you've, you've done the World Cup soccer games. You've, you've done some secular television, commercial and public. What are you going to do? And I honestly, till this day, I think I was just being a jerk and I blurted out something like, I don't know, maybe the church can use a person with my experience. I was just being, I, I think I was this big head at that point. And uh, she said, really, you would do that? And she took me serious. And I said, nah, I don't, I, I, I just, I'm, forgive me. I just said that. I was kind of being facetious. And she says, no, we you might be hearing from us. And I said, oh, okay, thank you. We finished the conversation. Uh, the time for the games came, we lived through that and we had another six months of, of salary to sort of bring everything back to normal in the different venues. And then it was just like the world cup experience. It's done. And at that point, we had our second daughter, and I definitely knew that I did not want to continue doing these because you could basically get wrapped up and going from this game to the next game. And once you're in their short list of people to call, you're basically on call to go do that. And it's so enticing because they pay you well, they relocate you, and you're in a different place, you're you know, hop-nobbing with a International Olympic Committee people. And it's it's an amazing world. I finally said, no, I can't do this. And I was actually out of a job for better part of a year. I had to live off my savings. We were living in Atlanta. We didn't really want to go back to Providence, Rhode Island. We still had had a home. We had bought a, a very small starter home there before we went to Atlanta. Thankfully, we had not sold it. So we finally said, we, we need to go back to Providence. And we did. And that's when I began doing just odds and ends kind of jobs I I became a community organizer for a neighborhood organization and just didn't know what else to do but it was drawing me back the community was drawing me back my dad of course was happy I was back in town he says can you help me at my church and I was like oh reluctantly say I guess I guess I can be a member again and help out and I was helping him with some special events and concerts and putting things on just to keep the whole event management thing going and uh Next thing you know, uh, Laura Alden finds me again in Providence, Rhode Island and says, remember when I told you, I might be calling you back. Well, we do a lot of heavy print stuff here. We don't do technology and we're getting set to launch some major initiatives at ABHMS. It was just known as national ministries back then. And we're going to hold events. We need to launch a website. We need videos. You've got the whole package. We can't pay you a whole lot of money, but we should be willing to do this. And it was like, You know, if it was about the money and the status, I'd have said, I'd immediately said, absolutely not. I'm waiting for that next gig. Who knows what other game is calling me? But we my wife and I prayed about it and we said, This is somewhere along this whole trajectory, God continues to show me there are other ways to be in service, to do good professional work, but don't be don't be so enamored with the big, shiny things. You have done some of that there's other ways to serve. And that's really what we were feeling. And that's when we, I went into denom- denominational work with American Baptist churches. And then that has a whole nother trajectory, which, you know, that was a long answer to your question is what I'm trying to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you've done a lot of work with, with American Baptists, including international ministries. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if maybe there's there's a trip with, because I know with International Ministries, you've been mm-hmm. all over the place yes. uh, doing various uh, video and photo and and, and work with them. Is there one that really stands out? Yeah. It really had an impact on you.
0: Almost immediately after starting, my executive director at International Ministries, which I, I went to after a few years with National Ministries, said, don't bring any fancy equipment. This is a relational trip. You're going to Thailand where we have some of the best ministries going. It's kind of a across the board type of ministries that they have. They still do in that area. And they said we we don't, I don't want you to film a, sim, a single minute of video or take any shots. This is just relational. You need to get that experience. And I said, okay, I took my camera anyway. And, uh, yourself, no, <laughs> I showed up in the, in the missionary, Annie Dieselberg and Jeff Dieselberg, uh, working out of Bangkok said, I hope you're ready for this, but some, a story is unfolding right now. And I was with a colleague and they said, whatever plans you had, we need you to help us document this because this is an amazing thing happening right this moment and what Long story short is they had helped a young woman who was involved in in a, in a brothel, indenture servitude, basically just being a, a, a slave to a mama son or a prostitution ring. Got drawn into that from with false promises and all of this. And, and the Diesel Burks had been working with this international organization that were helping to extract people from those situations. And they had fallen in love with, with Juan. That was her name. And they said, we want to help you get her out of that and put her into a safe house and see where her life can change. And they, they did that. But they that happened hours before a colleague and myself landed in Bangkok. And so they said, do you have a camera? And of course, I had the, the most frinky thing camera because I had listened to my boss and I said, I'm not going to take any of my professional gear. I said, I got this thing. And they said, whatever it is, we're going to document this. And that just, it was one of those things where we had this vision about what we were supposed to accomplish. And, but, but God was moving in different ways. And that was my first, the first trip where I realized you can do all of the technical planning. You can pack up all your gear. You could have a script ready. You could have all kinds of uh, connections and handlers on the ground to help maneuver all the situations and languages. But especially when you're dealing with the way God moves across the world through people and 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 sometimes through organizations and people that aren't really even people of faith, the spirit is going to move you in a different direction. And that's where I really learned, not just in that particular instance, but in almost every other documentary trip that I went with, with uh, different vendors, different organizations that, uh, yes, you plan, you want to always have a plan and, but be open to how the spirit is leading you. So that story Became uh, the world mission offering promotional video. The first year I started with I am, it was a big success. They raised a lot of money. It was featured in several different. Uh, all of the churches would get it from ABC, and it was uh, featured in various different iterations. So the story went on and on and on, and then we were. It was uh, it was my first international experience crafting a story that we didn't even know existed. Came back prayed about it, try to do the story uh with some ethics involved so we weren't abusing one story. So there was a layer of that where how do you just not blurt this out and give details and and aspects of stories that really you don't want to do, uh, for one or her community or even the partners in Bangkok, you want to really tell these stories in a way that resonate, but aren't really revealing everything that might not be appropriate. So those are, that's really where I cut my teeth into in doing these kinds of coverage stories. And, and from then, as you said, I, I went to two or three different countries per year to go cover disasters, response, educational stories, health stories, being in AIDS hospitals in the, in the middle of Ba Congo with the missionary Ann and Bill Clemmer while they're holding the hand of a villager that's seconds away from dying. Not recording it because it's one of those things that you just want to respect the moment, but the story itself of a human touch on a body that is at the end of life i'm getting goosebumps even as i describe it and living in those moments were just powerful and i said i don't ever want to do anything else but and so that's that's how i was able to help contribute to the storytelling and the fundraising and the promotional aspects of of uh, the international missions board of american baptist churches
1: there's so much incredible work you know god is at work in across the globe in many ways and you know, Baptists are being used by God to do a lot of that work. And yet we don't often hear the story. Someone has to be there to help tell the story Mm -hmm. and the document. And that's something that you've spent many years doing is what we try to do at Word and Way. Mm -hmm. But it's such an important part of the ministry of, of how do we, how do we tell the stories of, of the way God is at work right now in our own world?
0: Yeah. You know, the storytelling and the digital, especially in the digital world uh, now with social media discovering of what god is doing through people and and doing uh, justice to that story by honoring the the person or the communities that you're covering is very important and in this world of fast-paced uh, quick soundbite show up and spray your camera around and then don't even say goodbye, just leave. I would always leave a couple of days ahead of time, even before I would bring out my equipment because I wanted to sit and have tea with people that were there inviting me in. I wanted to sleep in their community. I wanted to do everything I could so that when I did say, I'm here to ask you a few questions, that rapport and that connection would be much much more rich and you would really get at a deeper part of a story that you wouldn't have gotten to if you had just started immediately turning on lights and flicking on buttons and saying, okay, tell me this, or here's what I want you to say in front of the camera, because <laughs> I already have this video all pre-planned. So just read the
1: script. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I particularly want to talk about one more trip. Mm-hmm. And you in I guess it was late in 2017, mm-hmm. you were heading over to Myanmar first with with Central and Central has a long partnership and a, a lot of work there. And then you did a, your own trip from there over to Bangladesh mm-hmm. uh, to meet with, to visit one of the, the large refugee camps mm-hmm. with Rohingya Muslims that had fled from ethnic genocide violence there in in Myanmar, mm-hmm. across the border. Uh, we ran several of your photos and a little bit of your story in the March- 2018 issue of Word and Way, and and I've seen you present some other of the photos elsewhere as well, and they're they're beautiful, mm-hmm. haunting sometimes, mm-hmm. but beautiful images, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that trip. Yeah, well, first of all you know, just even why you decided to go in that process of... Yeah. In my increasing
0: responsibilities here at the seminary, I've had to step back a little bit from a lot of the overseas trips. Although I have gone to Myanmar as a result of our connection, as you say, with uh, Myanmar Institute of Theology and a number of students that we help grow in theological with theological education. This was a, actually a trip where we were, President Molly Marshall and myself were going to document some of the stories of the students that have come through here but instead of meeting them in at the their seminary MIT we were, we wanted to get to their 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 places where they lived, and so we mapped out a couple of places. We wouldn't get ever, couldn't go everywhere, but we went to Kachin State and we went to Kaya State. And so there's there's several months of planning of that. At the same time as that is being planned, the news cycle started talking about this massive migration of people that was leaving, as you describe, uh, genocide in in Rakhine State in in Burma. Wow. It was just one of these moments that I didn't want to in these situations, you don't want to just insert yourself into the situation and just become one more person in the way. But what I felt like I could do is since I was going to be in a region, first I wanted to I wanted to try to get a better connection going between our Myanmar colleagues and what was happening in their country and in Bangladesh, which can kind of gets a little bit, a little bit difficult sometimes to sort of Unpack that. But I didn't want my trip to Myanmar and connection with people in Myanmar to stop me from going to Bangladesh. And I talked that over to the president. And I said, I'm really feeling really what I've described it is just this call to be present. And it was one of those moments where I said, even if I don't bring a camera, I just want to be there to be, to help process people if that's what's needed. There's tons of NGOs there. So, Hey, who am I? I'm just going to show up and say, Hey, I'm here to help. You know, that's usually the mentality is like, you know, save your complex and you show up and here I am. What can I do to help? Well, I didn't want to do that either, but it was sort of a, it was almost also a pilgrimage. It was something, a call, some sort of desire to try to help. And since I was already going to do some media coverage in Myanmar, I, I asked the president if I could sort of, sort of, you know, once we ended our project there, I can just stay and move my way into Bangladesh. And I did. And, but the process of just knowing how to create connections, who would be the organization that would allow, that would want to invite me in. That's another thing I learned through the International Ministry's work, is you don't just barge yourself into a situation, you're invited in. And if the person doesn't want you invited in, that's that's fine. There are other ways you could help serve. And so I, I began to contact Different NGOs. One NGO led me to another NGO. Some of my colleagues from International Ministries suggested, "Here's a person you might want to talk to." And it was just a lot of emailing back and forth, some Skype calling, some WhatsApp conversations, and it all just came together. Where one organization, and, and and my my pitch was always, "I don't want you to pay me. I'm going there on my own." In fact. Whatever I do capture, if that's what you want me to do, I'll turn it over to you because I know you're going to need to fundraise. You're going to need to do more storytelling around it. I'll bring hard drives. I'll put every image I shoot. And before I leave the country, you could have it and you can do whatever you want with it from there. I want no compensation. They said, really, you would do that? I said, yeah, And they, it was amazing how they didn't really totally didn't trust me until I actually (laughs) did it. But, um, Christian Aid ended up being one of the on the ground organizations that that was a trusted organization in fact one of the bigger players there outside of the United Nations High Commission on Refugees UNHCR this Christian Aid and several other you know a handful of others it are are well respected because of the way they do their work and they're the ones that I said if if you can grant if you can figure out a way to grant us access Into the camps. Great. If not, if I could just interview those. Relief workers when they come back to your headquarters to say what's going on with you, how are you meeting your needs? There' a big story there is how are the first responders taking care of their own emotional needs, and of course there are systems and 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 services there to provide for all that. But I was interested in that story too. If I'd never stepped foot into a Rohingya camp, I would have just wanted to talk to those who are coming back to rest and say, tell me what's going on in your head, and what can I. How can I find ways to resource you when I go back to the U.S. so that you could have more of this? And uh, it turns out that they said, yeah, no, we would love for you to come to the camps. And that was really a privilege because the military really has clamped that down pretty tightly. Of course, all the media from around the world descended on that part of the world. And they just like in a china shop, want to just push their weight around. And that creates more problems for those of us who want to do a media coverage or a presence kind of thing without all of the all of the strings attached so they had to go through all kinds of regulations and talk to the government officials and get clearances and it. It wasn't, it wasn't clear up until the moment we got to the gates of those, whether they would even allow us to walk in with the rest of the group. And they said, if, if, if you're not, if you can't go in, we're not going to bring you back another hour and a half to, to Cox's Bazar. You're just going to have to hang around town until we're done. And then we'll pick you up and go. Are you ready to do that? I'm like, we'll do what's necessary. And that's how it worked out. We ended up, I say we because in my connections with trying to find other other ways to be of service, a missionary from Ray Gallinger a missionary from International Ministries, who happens to be the global consultant on refugee and immigration issues, piqued his interest and said, "Hey, I'd like to go. Can I go with you?" And I said, "The more the merrier." I just and then at that point we made a connection with another NGO working out of. Daca that had not really had a vision for going into the camps, but were wondering about it, and so I said, "I'll pay your way. Just come. We would. I think if you can find a way to either join forces with some other organization or step back and say that's way too big for us, we will just need to focus on our thing. That's great, but it's a presence thing. And can, will you come with us? It's important for you as a Christian aid organization." to be able to do this. And they went along. So it ended up being this nice cohort of people, including a man that I didn't know, but I I got to connect because uh, in one of these long conversations over the phone when I was going to another media, media project, I was on the phone with one of our I M Missionaries just describing what I was hoping to do and going to Bangladesh and maybe landing in Dhaka and then figuring out a way to get to Cox's Bazaar. This woman standing in front of me is also on the phone, but she finishes her conversation and I can tell she's kind of like here. Hearing my conversation to the point where I'm like, I'm probably speaking too loud. Let me turn my voice down. Finally, when I said goodbye to the missionary, she turned around right away and said, I couldn't help but hear. Are you going to Dhaka?" I said, yes, I would love to. I'm, I'm trying to make connections. I need you to put you in contact with a good friend of mine that's uh, a Muslim running a, a high-tech company in Dhaka. And he told me that he emailed me the other day and he said that he he organized a fundraiser and took some things over to the camps. They weren't able to get to the camps, but he turned the stuff over to another aid organization. He is a person you need to know. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. He and I immediately connected and he said, not only can you stay in my place and I can work out some logistics on the ground for you, but I'm going to go with you. And so this other Muslim leader, young person out of Dhaka, was able to join a missionary from International Ministries, this media guy slash exec at Central Baptist Theological Seminary, and this other smaller NGO out of Dhaka together we we found our way we 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 rendezvoused in at some location and we went into the camps together and it was an amazing experience um, uh, mostly of presence of being able to say to people we're with you we couldn't even fathom what you're going through but we want to be able to tell your story, help this organization and help put this tent together and is providing you with a stove so you can cook, help them continue to raise more volunteers, help them continue to raise more awareness so that they can continue to have a presence here on these camps. At that time, the people on the ground felt like, oh, we're going to go home anytime now. It, things will clear up and we, we can't wait to get back. It was very really clear to us way back then in November of 2017 that this was going to be a long-range situation. And they're still there. They're still there. Yeah. And so we got to go to several different camps, including Kutupalong, which is one of the largest camps where as far as the eye can see, you can see these temporary shelters and, and clinics and schools and hygiene stations. It's an amazing little city and world all on its own with very rustic situation and living. It's a rough Situation for for the for for the refugees, of course, and those who are giving of themselves to be volunteers there. A lot of them, Muslim young people who left work in Dhaka and other places to be translators. Media people, logistics people, for all the NGOs, and that was another inspiring story: is to see this generation of young people didn't have to leave the comfort of their universities, colleges, high tech jobs, whatever they wanted, they were looking to do to better the whole country of Bangladesh to go meet the needs of this invading force. I mean, there are some people who talk to them, talk about the Rohingya as this invasion, right? We hear that here in the U.S. too. They picked up the other end of the stick. They said, first of all, we're we're Muslims. They're Muslims. It's Muslims helping Muslims. And I can't tell you what what a blessing it was for me to hear that from place to place when I spoke to the relief workers and why they were there. So uh, it was only a short two and a half, three days maybe on the ground and a couple of logistics days around around the edges, but it was impactful. We gathered video. I gathered uh, photos. Ray Scallinger was able to make connections that he's still working on to try to continue to do some more work there. Uh, I met with, believe it or not, some people who were refugees, young people, and you wouldn't believe in the refugee camp there's more cell phones than here in the U.S. It's just an, an amazing thing. The cell phones are everywhere outside of the U.S. It's not a, it's not a status thing. It's just a somehow they're all over the place. And I saw people using their phones, children even, to record things. And I would gravitate towards them and say, what are you doing? Let me see what you're doing. And the idea dawned on me. There are creative people here stuck in this no-person's land. They have lost all everything, but they have tools. They have the ability to tell a story. They could either draw a picture, write a poem, shoot a video with their cell phone. And my thought was the next time I come back, well, one of the things I want to do when I go back to the U S is try to see if we can figure out a way to find, find funding, not to go with our own idea of what we want to go produce there, but say, here's some techniques, here's some skills, here's some equipment that we'd like to ask you to use in the shaping of your own stories so that they could do it in their own voice they can do it in their own pace they can do it in their in 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 their own style even and then empower them to do that it could be a way to help people figure out that's something i can do for a living it could be a way for them to continue to tell their own story to document things that have happened for future generations and uh, so that's still the vision to try to uh, go back there with the connections that I was able to create with people in the camps and the NGOs surrounding the camps or in service to the people in the camps, trying to uh, see if they're willing to pick up portions of this so that it happens out of their energy and not mine.
1: Yeah. And and you're talking about that process of, you know, helping helping people tell their own story, you know, with their own voice. Uh, And as one of the things I appreciate about your work is the, the attention, the cultural sensitivity and the understanding that, we're telling a story, but we don't want to exploit the other for, you know, for our benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when I've heard you present some of your photos before, you've talked about also about, you know, showing your camera and making sure that you have some sort of permission mm-hmm. instead of just going around and taking pictures right. uh, of making sure that people are, are, mm-hmm. uh, and some of them would pose and, and it's interesting yeah. to see some of their faces and the, and the emotion, the different yeah. types of expressions that they would give you for the camera. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, that's important as, particularly for maybe for Christian storytellers that, you know, we have this ethical way of telling the story mm-hmm. and that we're not exploiting right those that were that mm-hmm. are there that are living through these circumstances. Okay. And I appreciate that sensitivity that you bring yeah. uh, to these projects.
0: Yeah. That I talked about being invited in a look can invite you in when they pose invites you in because they know, Oh, I, and that big smile invites you in. And I still go and point to my camera and nod. I can't speak their language. They can't speak mine, but it's the international. Hey, I'm ready for your, I'm ready for the shot. And then there are pictures that I never reveal. They're just pictures that stay in my light, light Lightroom files that I hold dear moments that I really, you know, I'm going to get emotional here. Moments that you say, I don't, I don't want to reveal that. I'm not, I, it doesn't need to be revealed. It spoke to me in a way that's powerful. I can tell that story in some other way. I tie, I try to get a person's name. And then when I, uh, w- when some of them through a translator would roughly tell me what their name is, I would write it down. And those are the names I'm using. Some I probably butchered, but some, the idea for me is for for me to leave a listener to the story with a face and a name that they can then pray for, think about, advocate for. And that makes all the difference when you just hear a story where you don't have a connection with a community, a person, a face, a name, an age, whatever, you can easily just get all that mixed in with all the other signals we get bombarded with. But when you walk away with a name, an age, a condition, you kind of. Connect that with somebody you know, or a situation that's dear to you, and you say, you know, that's like my grandmother. That's a grand. That could be my grandmother right there, and I wanna, I wanna pray for that person. And so I try to grab names. And there's other times when I I wasn't able to. But I will tell the story about them anyway if I feel that there was a, a way to do that in an effective way. I had a great time doing that at ChurchNet, and I look forward to doing some more of that, perhaps. It also helps me come back, all these projects that are outside of the central my central work helps me come back with a whole new energy. You know, I have, I operate on two sides of my brain. I can get really heavy into administration, strategy, thinking, plotting, timelines, deadlines, all of that. That's what made me survive the Olympic games and the World Cup soccer games. It was nothing but project management and sprinkled in with some great sports, uh, exposure. Uh, the, uh, the role that I have now is a lot of that heavy sort of administrative, uh, strategy stuff. But what, what I was able to convince and, and ask the president here to la- allow me to do is, um, I haven't done it in a bit and I'm looking to maybe ramp up some more of my overseas work as, as the same, as that's at the same time, as I continue to do my role here it, is to give me the space to be able to take on a project whether it's my own desire to go somewhere or because I'm piggybacking off of a project that we're already doing here or because a client says, hey, I need you in XYZ place. Can you go with me? I always run that by president here. We try to find connections. And that exposure allows me to come back with a whole nother set of energy to tackle the boardroom stuff and the things that are also very important, but that require uh, a sense of reality you come back with when you ex- are exposed to situations like that, you come back and you think this issue where we think it's a big issue here, that's that's a no brainer. That's something we can easily fix. We're blessed to be able to have the resources and the thinking and the space to be able to do some of these things together. So I like to think that this world of digital storytelling and uh, cross-cultural storytelling Community engagement then blends into my work here as a leadership team lead, uh, member with the seminary now looking to take us to, you know, other directions and and, and ramp up programs and connections. So uh, it's a blessing to be involved in this uh, ministry, one that I swore way back when, when I first left home and said, Mom, Dad, thank you for everything you've done for me. I love the people at church, but I don't ever want to do anything with church or anything that promotes the church. And look where I find myself
1: today. And they're proud. They're excited.
0: (laughs) My dad is still, you know, uh, my biggest promoter. There you go. Very
1: good. Well, thank you, Francisco, so much for your time, for being here on the program, for all the work you do, for your service to Word and Way as a trustee, as well as letting us use those photos. We look forward to, mm-hmm. to using more from you in the future. You made a comment about presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's something that you also then help us by printing the photos so that those who can't travel still have a sense of presence. Yeah. They can see this isn't mm-hmm. just some, some nameless, big problem that they might hear a little blip on the news. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there, there are real people, real names, Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can look at them yeah. and to learn about them. And I think that's, that's such an important ministry of storytelling that you're helping us do. So thank you so much for. You are welcome. It's you.
0: my pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to tell bits of my story and uh, for what you're doing at Word and Way, the way you're leading it, and this, this great podcast resource that you're now is just one more way for people to learn about what's happening in Baptist life and uh, uh, find yet yeah, new ways to connect.
1: Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Found Adjective. You can learn more about Central Baptist Theological Seminary at cbts.edu. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you have any comments or feedback, please send them to me at bkaylor at wordandway.org. And if you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and our monthly magazine. Thanks for listening.